He has gone to prepare a place for us. And he is coming again for those who know him, for those who have been born again. And if you don't know Christ, you can know him. He is willing to receive you. He is willing to forgive you of every blot and stain and vestige of sin you've ever committed. But you must come in humility, admitting those things are wrong, that they need forgiveness. But if you don't know him, when he comes back for his church to take us to heaven, you will in the end end up in an awful place called hell. He is coming back. The question is, is he coming back for you? Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, God's Future Prophetic Schedule. Revelation chapter 22 verse 21 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is a reminder that while we wait for His return, not only are we saved by grace, but we also need to be sustained by the grace of God. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. And so we studied this coming great economic reset. It will happen during this time. No one will be able to buy or sell anything. I think some presets are unfolding in our day, getting the world ripe for it. Perhaps uh, this uh, digital money that people are wanting to utilize that they're actually using in some cities in China or exclusively in the Bahamas. And our own president issued an executive order for our nation to study it in the World Economic Forum last May. 114 countries discussed it in great detail. All it will take is one major economic implosion for a great economic reset where you go to a digitized form of money. Then chapter 14 opens with John seeing Jesus, the Messiah, on Mount Zion. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name in the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So John now looks into the future. He sees these 144,000 whose ministry is now complete. They have preached the gospel worldwide, and where are they standing? They're standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. Where's that? The Temple Mount. And so we studied this future temple that God is yet to build. And the Temple Mount won't look like it looks today, but it will be from that place that Jesus will ultimately reign. And then beginning in verses 6 through 11, we find three angels that are called by God to preach three messages so that men and women still might repent. Now, please understand, we, under, we, we learned that during the church age, angels don't preach the gospel. An angel might get someone to tell them where they can get the gospel, like in Acts chapter 10, but angels don't preach the gospel. The only people God has ever used to preach the gospel are those who are redeemed by grace. But there's coming a day when God's modus operandi will change. God will use 144,000 Jews, two witnesses who will minister from the Temple Mount, and I suspect they will teach the meaning of the temple and all of its sacrifices and how they all point to Yeshua. And then God will use three angels it's going to be absolutely amazing because they will preach an eternal gospel. And so in the coming day, the gospel will be preached by these three groups. Chapter 14 crescendos by introducing us to the uh, battle of Armageddon or the war of Armageddon, we might say. Look at verse 18. Then another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice, 
to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. That's the length of Israel. We'll see in a moment. This is the battle of Armageddon that Jesus is going to put an end to at his second coming. And there'll be so much blood-soaked grass in earth that just as a horse gallops across a muddy field and has mud up to its bridles, so there will be blood up to the horse's bridle here at this time. Chapter 15 then introduces us to the seven golden bowls of wrath with seven angels involved in revealing these bowls are also called plagues. Look at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues which are the last because in them the wrath of God is taleo. It's finished. It's paid in full as it were. The wrath of God during the tribulation time will have been satisfied with these last plagues. And so chapter 15 refers to the bulls and the last plagues because once they are executed, the wrath of God is finished and it's time for Jesus to come back. Chapter 16 gives us the specific nature of these plagues and how intense they are. And again, there's an intensification that takes place like a woman in labor. It starts with the seal judgments. And as you read through the seal judgments, how much of the world is affected? A fourth. You step into the trumpet judgments. How much is affected? A third. But when you come to the bold judgments, they affect the entire planet. The world is in full labor waiting for Jesus. And so again, here's a chart helping us to see the relationship between these judgments. And the seventh seal is contained seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet is contained the seven bowls of God's wrath. And here's a picture of those seven bowls of wrath. The first bowl in verse 2 is described as a loathsome, loathsome and malignant sore in the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. And so these are people who are suffering physically. They had already rejected peace with God. They chose to serve the Antichrist. And God only allows it to fall on them. And he's giving, I think, a picture, maybe for still some unrepentant people, of their need to call upon Jesus for salvation. And their great Antichrist won't be able to save them from this any more than he'll be able to save them from the coming eternal wrath. Verse 3 tells us of the second bowl resulting in the sea becoming, notice, blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Look, billions of people live off the sea every single day, but now there will be starvation and stench beyond all imagination. Verse 4 tells us of the third bowl of wrath. Notice, God poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now every single source of fresh water is gone. Your well will be blood. Your rivers will be blood. Your lakes will be blood. The bottled water will soon run out. They say man can live quite a number of days without food, but on average, a man can only go about a week without water. Down in verse 8, the fourth bowl is poured out where the sun is so hot that men feel a burning from it. Do they repent? No, they blaspheme the living God. Look at verse 10. We learn then of the fifth bowl where we are told that the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and on his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Can you imagine that? You ever bite your tongue? I mean, I've only been in intense 
excruciating pain once in my life when I got my arm caught in a lawnmower. Ah, I was gnawing my tongue. That's what you want to do. You're doing everything to try to somehow process in your mind the pain that you're in. They nod their tongues because of pain. They blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So this signals that death is now coming to the planet, the sixth bowl. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way might be prepared for the kings of the earth. For that final world war, so to speak, this superhighway is provided as the Euphrates is dried up and the kings of the east come out. And we read in verse 13, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. We might say it from the lying mouth of Satan, from the lying mouth of the Antichrist, from the lying mouth of his false prophet, from this unholy trinity will come deception. And where are they going? They're going to the Jezreel Valley. Some of you have stood at Harmageddo, that elevated mountain of sorts. You can see the Jezreel Valley where a man will line up the nations of the world to march on Jerusalem. Then the seventh bowl is poured out, described here in verse 16 and verse 20. We're told that there's lightning and thunder. And then in verses 20 and 21, in every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because of its plague was extremely severe. Now God intends with this judgment not only to punish mankind, but to prepare the world for the second coming. The planet initially is being prepared. God is gonna make it much like it was before the great fall and before the time of Noah's flood. And then in chapters 17 and 18, two important questions are asked and answered. In chapter 17, it asks, what is the religion during the tribulation? And again, in the first half, there will be the religion of the harlot in contrast of the bride of Christ, where you have this one world religion, so to speak, made up of all these multiplicity of false religions. But then in the second half, there'll be a singular religion of the Antichrist. And so in chapter 17 and verse 6, it says, And I saw the woman, the harlot, this false church, drunk with the blood of the saints. What are they doing? They're killing those Christians. They're killing tribulation saints. The tribulation saints are saying, Call on Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the one who alone can forgive your sin. We don't want to hear it. They're drunk with the blood of the saints, of the witnesses of Jesus. Because that's what saints do. They witness when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And so in chapter 17, you see the harlot rides the Antichrist. They're linked together. And it's not by accident that the European common market, or whatever title it now has, their symbol is a woman on a beast. Remember, it is from this region of the world. Western Europe from a 10-nation coalition that an 11th diminutive king is going to come up and serve as the Antichrist. And so verse 16 now teaches the beast with the support of his 10 kings will hate the harlot, the false religious system that is built on seven hills, the Bible teaches, and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. In other words, you either worship me or you don't worship Paul. Then chapter 18 asks and answers another question. What will be the governmental climate? What will be the economic climate during this seven-year period? 
And again, you discover that the economies of the world are linked together. And I have no doubt that our government wants to see our economy implode. Not, not many people, but there are people in our government who want to see it implode. Why? Because of their socialistic dreams. And if the government implodes economically, you have a perfect setting for a coming one world economy. This is not the reset. The reset happens, as I discussed in these sermons. I did a sermon on the religious reset, the governmental reset, and the economic reset. It will happen during the time of the Great Tribulation, but the stage is being set. There are presets that are unfolding, and there will be this one world government that is connected. And so the presidents and the kings and the prime ministers of the world, they will see their glorious city from which the Antichrist rules destroyed. And so you read in verse 10, whoa, whoa, chapter 18, whoa, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city For in one hour, your judgment has come to the earth. Now, chapter 19. It opens up with four hallelujahs in verses 1, 3, and 4. And in verse 6, we're given the source of their praise. Notice, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, as this next slide shows, during this time of the tribulation, that the bride of Christ is made ready. We're at the Bema seat. We're being clothed according to our rewards in heaven. You're saved by grace alone, but you're rewarded for your service, which is also done by grace. As you yield to the grace of God moment by moment and allow the Spirit to fill you, he'll reward you for it someday. And the marriage of the Lamb will happen in heaven. Then he will come back at the second coming and we will ride with him. And the marriage supper will take place on the earth because it will include all those who are resurrected at the second coming, which will be tribulation saints as we studied and Old Testament saints and all the church saints. And we will sit down, not in some dreamy cloud-like picture as it's often rendered, but the Lord's Supper will take place on the earth. Oh, it's going to be absolutely magnificent. Look at verse 11 here of chapter 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he, that's Jesus, who sat on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, that's us, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's at this time when we ride back with him, there's this massive battle of the nations of the world going against Jerusalem And Jesus will smush all the armies in a split second. Then I saw, verse 17, an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, All the birds which fly in midheaven, come assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, the small and the great, none are excluded. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So if you know this chapter, we studied it in great detail. There are two great suppers, two great banquets in chapter 19. There's the marriage, great marriage supper of the lamb that takes place on the earth. But there's also what's called here the great supper of God. At one supper, there's a sense of great joy and blessing 
At the other supper, there's great sorrow. Those who believe in Jesus will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who've rejected him will be the supper. They will be eaten by birds. Now, verse 20, and the beast, that's the Antichrist, was seized. And with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So Christ rides back from heaven. We're behind him. He smushes the armies of the Armageddon. He takes the beast. He takes his false prophet. And the first two recipients to go into the lake of fire are these two. Now, again, we have distinguished all the way through this series, as this next chart shows, the difference between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture will meet the Lord in the air. He'll catch us up in the air. The second coming, Jesus comes to the earth. He stands on the Mount of Olives. At the rapture, Christ comes for his people. At the second coming, angels will come for the lost to remove them. At the rapture, his people are removed from earth to heaven. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, where are you, Jesus? In heaven, you'll be there too. Where at the second coming, the lost are removed from earth, where into Hades, the current place of judgment. At the rapture, Jesus comes before the hour of trial that will come on the earth. The second coming, he comes at the end of the hour of trial. At the rapture, there's no signs. It's always been imminent. It could happen at any moment. Whereas the second coming, there's all kinds of prophecies that have taken place, that are taking place in our day, and that will take place after the church is removed. It's a prophetically driven event. The rapture, the resurrection takes place when Christ comes in the air. We shall all be changed. This mortality will put on immortality. This perishable put on the imperishable. Where at the second coming, a resurrection takes place after Christ descends to the earth. Who's raised? Tribulation saints who died during the time of the great tribulation. And that's when Daniel 12, 1 and 2, all Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the Old Testament saints are raised at the second coming. At the rapture, believers are alive and they receive glorified bodies in the twinkling of an eye. Or at the second coming, believers who are alive at his return, who survived the tribulation, they enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies. And the curse will be lifted in some respect off of the creation. And we went through six reasons God had for the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. And of course, we read further. Uh, then I saw an angel coming from heaven. I'm in chapter uh, 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. This is at the second coming. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So Satan is locked away in the abyss, in this prison, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And so during this thousand-year reign of the Messiah, there will be unparalleled peace and blessing, no freedom of interference from the evil one whatsoever. He will be in the abyss during this period of time. But then notice verse 8, he's released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations. Who is he going to deceive? The only way you either erase the plain reading of Scripture and you just say that extent we're all just going to heaven saved and the lost are separated, that's the amillennialists. Or just like God fulfilled the first coming, literally, actually, for every prophecy, he will fulfill the prophecies for the second coming. 
And the only way to understand this is a pre-tribulational rapture. Why? Because those who enter in the millennium during the reign of Christ in their natural bodies will be able to have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And not all of them with Jesus literally ruling on the earth will respond. It will be a picture of how depraved man can be. And Satan, when he's been bound for a thousand years, will be released for a short time. And what will he do? He'll deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And so we studied in this series three great wars. The first war, it's called the Battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's a war that has never taken place in human history. It will involve Russia, Iran, Turkey, Ethiopia, and Libya. And so you see these five nations even today working together as chums. Nations that a decade ago hated each other while they're working together. This will happen after the rapture of the church. At the end of the seven-year period, the battle of Armageddon, where not five nations, but all the nations of the world go against Israel. But then at the end of the millennium, there's this third and final battle that is described that we studied in great detail. Verse 9, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them, just like at Armageddon. So there will be rebellion, but Christ will squash it, verse 10. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also, because they're not annihilated. Hell is forever. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that brought us to the final judgment of all time, the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. We saw it was Jesus, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Without stammer or stutter, God lays it down, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so if someone is cast into the lake of fire, it is their own fault. Why? Because they rejected Jesus. God doesn't want anyone to go to the lake of fire. He didn't even make it for them. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God didn't make the lake of fire for man. He made it for the devil and his angels. And if someone goes there and met, they refuse the second birth that they needed by the grace of God. Notice how the book comes to a conclusion, chapter 22, the final invitation. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And then in verses 18 and 19, this final warning, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. And then the very final words of Jesus ever spoken, ever recorded, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. And he gives assurance for those of us who are reading it to press on. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. And John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And so while we wait, not only are we saved by grace, we need to be sustained by the grace of God. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the book of Revelation. And that, my brothers and sisters, is God's future prophetic schedule. Now, maybe you disagreed with me on some of the finer points. But I can tell you this. While you may differ on some minute points, we all agree 
He is coming back. Johnny went off to war. They thought he was dead. Then they found out he was alive and they were awaiting his return. The family literally got into an argument. I think he's coming by on the bus. We need to go out of the bus station. Someone else said, he's going to come in on the train. We need to meet him at the train station. Someone else said, he's coming to the airport. And they went into this discussion. Someone said, well, what's the discussion? Oh, they're arguing how he's going to come back. And then suddenly the door opens and it's Johnny. Right in the midst of their debate, Johnny walks in. And I've been teaching you for 13 months on God's future prophetic schedule. And I can tell you while you may differ on the details, he has gone to prepare a place for us. And he is coming again for those who know him, for those who've been born again. And if you don't know Christ, you can know him. He is willing to receive you. He is willing to forgive you of every blot and stain and vestige of sin you've ever committed. But you must come in humility, admitting those things are wrong, that they need forgiveness. But if you don't know him, when he comes back for his church to take us to heaven, you will in the end end up in an awful place called hell. He is coming back. The question is, is he coming back for you? Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to study these great truths that you gave the grace to walk through this incredible series of events that you have unfolded for us in your word. I pray today for someone listening to this message, maybe live streaming, maybe listening to it later. Help them to know that Christ loves them, that he died in their place, that he was raised for them, that if they will come in humility and faith and trust the one who bore our sins in his body, that you will save them immediately and forever. Father, for those of us who know you, you have given us your prophetic word so that we might not be scared, but that we might be prepared, that we might be ready, that we might be living for Jesus, not caught up in the vain and empty things of life, but having our eye on eternity. Thank you for the blessed hope that will someday unfold that we need not despair with the events of our day, that you are sovereign and in absolute control and things are unfolding according to your plan. We bless you for those truths in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. Maybe somebody you, you have a decision to make. You've received Christ and you've never made it public. Or you've received Christ, you've never been baptized as a symbol of your salvation or you're saved and baptized, but you need a church home. You may be in Grays in Graniteville where we've seen a number of decisions recently. I wanna invite you to leave your seat. Someone's down there in front of that auditorium to greet you. And if you're here and you have a decision to make, I wanna invite you to step out and meet me here in the front. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 787 7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 031. There is no friendship that is more important than friendship with God. It is a relationship with eternal consequences and the greatest act of care and concern you can ever show someone is to introduce them to Jesus. If you have never shared Christ with anyone or if it has been a while since you have done so, we would like to help. 
Dr. Brogy has written a booklet that highlights five principles. Would you like to know God as your friend begins with a number of diagnostic questions and concludes with a presentation of the gospel message. These booklets will really simplify sharing your faith. And now we will send you 50 of these booklets as our thanks for a gift of any amount to search the scriptures. Call us today at 877-787-7478 and ask for the Would You Like to Know God is Your Friend gift pack. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.